Wow, good to see all of you here today. This is an exciting weekend for us as we launch our third service here at 11 o'clock. So we're so glad that that you're here uh, indoors. Those of you who are watching outdoors in our outdoor venue under the tent, and of course all of you who are online all over the world, uh, thank you for joining us. It is good to have you here. I want to begin by uh, telling you about something that happened to uh, us just recently, I think in the last week and a half it was, about a week and a half ago, our ring security camera went off, uh, started beating, uh, chirping wildly to notify us that a white, kind of a white, a beat up white pickup truck pulled up in front of our neighbor's house. Now this thing's got an incredible wide angle lens that even picks up what's going on in front of your neighbor's house. And so this truck showed up, and then it, it parked, and, there were, and, and in it were these kind of these three suspicious-looking characters. And they got out, and they sat in the, in the back of the pickup truck. And, and uh, so we immediately alerted our neighbor, Louise, to let her know, and she wasn't too thrilled about it. And uh, they were kind of just loitering around there, chatting, eating, and, and it seemed like they were kind of staggering around, so that kind of concerned us. And, and they showed up around dinner time, and, um, and then they finally left around 1.30 a.m. And the reason why I know that is because I was up the entire night watching them uh, on my Ring doorbell app, watching them. And, you know, of course, that thing, every time there's a motion, the motion detector goes off, and it's, like, it's, it's going off, it's buzzing, telling me that there's some movement out there. So I was up till 1.30, until they, which is when they finally left, and I was exhausted as I uh, finally went to sleep. Well, the next day, they came back. They came back, and again, I knew that because the ring camera thing went off, and this time, they parked in front of our house, our house. And uh, I I was half tempted to go out there and say to them, you know, I think you'd much rather park in front of our neighbor's house. It's just a much better view, and I, I couldn't think of a good reason why I should say that, so I didn't. And, of course, we were just kind of, like, nervous about what might happen. You know, I didn't want one of our catalytic converters to disappear again. And so for the next hour or so, I just kept an eye on them, on, on my camera. And ever so often, I would peek out through the front window to see what they were doing. And, again, they were just hanging out there, kind of loitering, talking, kind of wandering around, and then eating. And then, and then they threw all their trash out onto the street and on our sidewalk. And then... They finally left, and after they left, I had to go out there, and I, I inspected the street, and there was trash everywhere, and so I had to get a broom and a dustpan, and I had to sweep everything up, and so I wasn't too happy about that. So the next night, I decided, I'm smart, I decided to leave here, leave church early, and I went back, and I decided I wanted to get there before they got there, all right? So I got there before they got there, and when I got there, I parked my car. Instead of putting my car in the garage like I always do, I decided to park my car right on the street in front of our house. Now, here's what you need to understand. There are two parking spaces in front of our house. So I parked right in the middle of those two spaces, right? So they couldn't park there. And so uh, sure enough, they showed up and they had to park down the street. Cha-ching! A few days after this incident, I read the introduction of a book that Pastor David Platt wrote just recently called Something Needs to Change. And I just read the introduction to it. It's about his journey 
uh, hiking through the Himalayas uh, several years ago. He opened the book with these riveting words describing the last day of his trip. This was the last day of his trip, and I'll put, uh, I'm going to read it, just a few paragraphs. I want to put it up here for you. He wrote, alone in a guest house at the base of the Himalayas, I found myself on my knees, face to the floor, sobbing. Scattered around me was the evidence of my past week, a backpack, trekking poles, hiking boots. I was fresh off a week-long journey through some of the highest mountains in the world and only hours from a flight home to the States. But I hadn't planned on ending my trip with out-of-control tears. Up to that day, I could count on one hand the number of times I cried in my adult life. The last time I had wept was the day I received the phone call that my dad had died of a sudden heart attack. But this day, in an Asian guest house, was different. This time, I wasn't weeping because I was missing someone or even something. Instead, I was crying uncontrollably because of what others, men, women, and children I'd met the past week, were missing. Things like water, food, family members, freedom, and hope, and a flood of tears wouldn't stop. Looking back on that day in the guest house, I wonder why being so overwhelmed for others in need has been uncommon for me. I think of all the church services I'd been in week after week, year after year, talking and hearing about the needs of people all over the world. I think of all the sermons I've preached about serving those in need, so why has it been rare for me to be so moved by the needs of others that I have fallen on my face before God and wept? I don't think the question is just for me. When I think of all those church services, I recall very few instances when Christians and I have wept together for people who are missing water, food, family, freedom, or hope. Why is a scene like that so uncommon among us? It makes me wonder if we've lost our capacity to weep. It makes me wonder if we have subtly, dangerously, and almost unknowingly guarded our lives, our families, and even our churches from truly being affected by God's word to us in a world of urgent spiritual and physical needs around us. We talk a lot about the need to know what we believe in our heads, yet I wonder if we have forgotten to feel what we believe in our hearts. How else are we to explain our ability to sit in services where we sing songs and hear sermons celebrating how Jesus is the hope of the world, yet rarely, if ever, fall on our faces weeping for those who don't have this hope, and then take action and make this hope known to them? You know, when I read these words, I was convicted, so convicted by my, of my attitude and my behavior toward these three men in the beat-up white pickup truck. I never thought to weep for them because of what they might be missing, because of what they might not have, and that's a relationship with the God of this universe. And all I thought of instead was they might take my catalytic converter, they're potential troublemakers. And then after I read this and I reflected back on the last week and a half, I came to the realization, like his, the title of his book, something needs to change, but something needs to change in me. Something needs to change here. You know, for the last several weeks, we've been in a series here called What the World Needs Now. And of course, the answer to that is love, right? And as Christ follows, we know that. This is a no-brainer. We are, we are commanded to love. We need to love. But if we're honest, it's not easy to love. So it begs the question, how do we love? How do we love? And that's a topic I want to explore with you today. 
So grab a Bible, wherever you're at, grab a Bible and uh, open up our app. Of course, we'll put all the verses up here for you as well. But if you open up our app, if you don't have it, you can download it right now from the Apple Store or the Google Play. And I think you'll find it helpful because all the scriptures are, are, are listed there as well. So let's pray first, all right? And then we'll unpack this whole idea about what it means to love and how we, how we love. Father, thank you for gathering us together today. It is so good to be here. Father, thank you for each and every one, and thank you for each and every one who's out there uh, in, um, all throughout the country, all throughout the world who are watching online. And Father, truth is, it's really hard to love. This is what the world needs now more than anything else, but I get the sense that we don't always get it. I don't get it. And something needs to change in me. So, Father, this morning I pray that you would speak to each and every one of us. I pray that your word would convict us. I pray that your word would transform us. And I pray that your word would get a hold of us, God, so that we would begin to love in the way that you want us to. So, thank you, Father. We, again, I, I ask you would just, I would just be your vessel, God, for what it is you want to say. And I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so... So that we're on the same page, all right? So we're on the same page. Let me first tell you about where love comes from, all right? This is kind of setting the, the groundwork here. Where does love come from? Well, love comes from our hearts. That's where it comes from. Love comes from our hearts. Um, here's how the Apostle Paul put it. Take a look at 1 Timothy 1, 5. Uh, this is the first verse. I'm just going to set it up here for you. It says, the aim of our charge, Paul wrote, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. All right, one more time. The aim of our charge is love. We're commanded to love. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. All right, so the word issues there means to come from. All right, so love, he said, comes from our hearts. Love comes from within our hearts. The Greek word for heart is cardia, which is where we get the word cardiologist, who is a heart doctor. And the word cardia is mentioned in the Bible, appears in the scriptures more than 800 times. And it, cardia never refers to your physical heart, which, you know, might look like this in this particular diagram. might look like this. But instead, cardia, this is not cardia. Cardia refers to the emotional center of your being. One definition I read said that cardia is the seat of your thoughts, passions, desires, appetites, affections, purposes, and endeavors. And thus, cardia in the scriptures refers to your inner man. It is your inner man. It is who we are on the inside. So Paul said, love comes from our hearts. Love comes from within. It comes from who we are inside. Now, according to the scriptures, 3,000 years ago, God went in search of someone who would be the next king of Israel. And this new ruler would replace the current king, the existing king, King Saul. He would replace him, who was in every way a disaster. He was a failed king. And so here's what 1 Samuel 13, 14, the next verse, says about the kind of man that God went in search of. 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, it says, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord commanded him to be prince over his people. Right? The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord commanded him to be a prince over his people. So when this tells us when Almighty God went in search of a man, a king, uh, to be Israel, over Israel, his only qualification, his only qualification was that that man would be a man after his own heart. This was God's standard for leadership. 
You know, when it's election time around here, we will assess all the candidates. We'll look at all the candidates and, and determine who we're going to vote for based mainly on party affiliation, is my guess, but also on the issues, what they believe about climate change or abortion or crime or race or immigration or the economy or who has endorsed them. All kinds of different issues we'll, we'll evaluate. God had only one benchmark for evaluating who would be the next king of Israel, and that was whether he had a heart like his. That was all that God was looking for. It was the only thing that mattered. And he found that man in a teenager named David. Take a look at Acts chapter 13, verse 22. And it says, and when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king and removed him, refers to Saul. He raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will, right? David was the man that God found. He was the man that had a heart after him. Now, David was the youngest of eight boys. He was the son of Jesse, as it says here. He had seven older brothers, all of whom were probably more qualified to be king than he was. They were older, more experienced. They were warriors. But God didn't choose them. He chose David, the youngest, the teenager, because he was the only one among them who had a heart after God. So what does it mean to have a heart after God? What does that mean? For first, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. To have a heart after God doesn't mean you're perfect. David wasn't perfect. No one is perfect. David is, was as flawed as flawed could be. He committed some very grievous sins in his lifetime. But here's what God noticed about David when David sinned. He noticed that when David sinned, it wrecked him. His sin wrecked him. Here's what David wrote in Psalm 38 as he agonized over his personal sins. Take a look at Psalm 38, starting in verse 4. David wrote these words. He wrote, For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. All my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O oh Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails. In the light of my eyes, it is also gone from me. I mean, can you hear the, can you feel the torment in his soul over the sin that he committed? Whatever that sin is, we don't know, we don't know what specific sin he committed with regards to this particular chapter. I mean, it could have been any number of sins. I mean, it could have been lust, for example, which was one of the sins that, that David struggled with. And then he goes on. He goes on like this throughout the entire chapter, chapter 38. I mean, if you're struggling with sin right now, you want to read chapter 38 today. And then seven verses later, he wrote this. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. You see, David's reaction to sin was that it broke him. It grieved him. It pained him. And his reaction to sin was a far cry from Saul's reaction to sin. You know, you know how Saul reacted to his own sin? He justified it and he excused it away. That's how he reacted. And that's one of the reasons why God decided to remove him as king and replace him with David. David's response to his own sin was first and foremost that, that he, would, he was broken over it. And that's why he, 
it was said that he, had a, he was a man after God's own heart. And you can write that one down. Someone with a heart after God is someone who is broken over sin. And they are quick to, quick to recognize their wrongdoings. And it grieves them and they confess it and they repent of it. Is that something you do when you are confronted with your sin? I mean, have you ever found yourself so broken over what you've done that you couldn't sleep at night? Have you ever found yourself in anguish over the fact that you went out and got drunk or that you watched porn or that you have hate in your heart or that you were just downright mean, maybe even to your own spouse? Or do you just excuse it away? Do you justify what you've done? Someone with a heart after God is not someone who is perfect, but someone with a heart after God is someone who is broken over their sin. You know, last November... Jill Berdeos, who's a young single mother who attends our church, uh, underwent surgery to have a 25-centimeter mass removed from her abdomen. 25 centimeters is about that large, which is about the size of a football. And this thing was lodged inside, growing inside of her, her tummy. Um, after surgery, after her surgery, the people in our church, many people in our church just kind of rallied around her. And they, they set up a meal train for her that went, lasted for months. And uh, there, it was Christmas, and they, they provided Christmas gifts to the kids. I think they got them a tree. Um, they, they even blessed her with monetary gifts. Um, it was amazing. And they did all this during the pandemic. Here's a photo that she posted on November 3rd as she was uh, being prepared for the operating table. And it was accompanied with this caption. This was all on Facebook. She wrote, see you all later after my surgery. Surgery will take, take three to four hours. Praise God, feeling excited. And I remember just reading this and being kind of taken aback, like, wow. You know, she's going to have surgery, remove this huge mass. And she's excited, and she praises God. You see, Jill had an outrageous faith in Almighty God, and she has an outrageous faith in Almighty God. Well, several weeks later, she met with a doctor, and he gave her the grim news. She had stage four cervical cancer. And you know how Jill re responded? She didn't become bitter. She didn't question God's goodness and faithfulness. Her outrageous faith became even more outrageous. She trusted God even more. She put her faith in him even more. She looked to him even more. And she would, she would always be online. She would make sure her kids were uh, fed spiritually. She showed up at Tuesday night prayer meetings. And as soon as we started meeting about six weeks ago, she and her family were among the first ones to show up at church, even though the chemo treatments that she was undergoing were absolutely brutal on her body. She reminds me of David. David was only a teenager when he confronted one of the biggest trials of his life in the form of a Philistine giant named Goliath. You know this story? And you remember David, David's response? He said to those initially, he said to those standing around him, he said, how dare he defy the armies of the living God? How dare Goliath defy the armies of the living God? And then he marched out in the battlefield all alone to take him on with just a slingshot and some stones. And then 1 Samuel 2, or 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 45 says, And then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. 
And this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. He had an outrageous faith. And this, this sounds like Jill. She had an outrageous faith in the God of the universe. And that's the second characteristic of someone who has a heart for God, and that is they have an outrageous faith. They have an outrageous faith. They believe that God is God Almighty. They believe that God is powerful. They know that He can, they believe that He can do anything. I mean, do you believe that? To someone with a heart after God, no obstacle is too big. No trial is too large. No mountain is immovable. Nothing is impossible for God. Do you have that kind of outrageous faith? By the way, a few days ago, just a couple of days ago, Jill posted another photo on her Facebook page. Here it is, and this time the caption read, I am now cancer-free. All glory to God. Thank you for your prayers and support. Thank you, Jesus. You are our greatest healer. After all those rounds of treatments. She was determined to be cancer-free. The cancer is gone. I believe, I heard that uh, Jill will be here at the 11 o'clock service. You see, if you're facing the biggest trial of your life today, maybe you have been diagnosed with cancer. Maybe your marriage is struggling. Maybe you've been unemployed for months. Maybe you you have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow, right? Have an outrageous faith in God because God is God and there isn't anything that he can't do. The third characteristic uh, of someone who has a heart after God is found in Acts chapter 13, verse 22. So take a look at that, Acts chapter 13, verse 22. We read this a little bit ago, but let me read it to you one more time. And it's simply this. They, someone who has a heart for God is, is uh, willing to do whatever God wants them to do. Right? Take a look at it again. And when he had removed him, when, when God had removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. There it is right there, who that last prayer, who will do all my will. You see, a man after God's own heart, a woman after God's own heart will, is willing to do whatever God wants him to do. They are willing to do God's will, do all of God's will. And I love the New Living Translation uh, of this verse, this version. And it says this. I'll put it side by side. It says, but God removed Saul and replaced him with David, a man about whom God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Isn't that good? He is willing to do everything I want him to do. In a nutshell, this meant that David was willing to obey God's word. Right? He was willing to do whatever God's word told him to do. This, and this is how we know what God wants for us, right? It's right here in, in God's word, right? It's in the Bible. This is how we know what God wants us to do. I mean, because this tells us who he is, and it tells us who we are, and it tells us how to live, and it tells us how to relate to people. I mean, it just tells us everything about everything that we need to know. It's right here. This is our plumb line. Right? This, is our, this is our line in the sand, if you want to call it that. This is our measuring stick. This is our supreme authority. This is the truth. There is absolute truth in the world, and it's found right here. It is in this book. This is absolute truth. Whatever it says is true. And, uh, and that's why Pastor Greg and I endeavor every week to tell you what the Bible says. 
right? We, we want you to hear what the Bible says. This is our responsibility. The responsibility of a preacher is open up this book and tell you what it says. We don't, we don't, you don't care about our opinion, and we don't care about our opinion either. We care about God's opinion, and that's our job. That's our job to, to do that. That's why we study hard to do everything we can, and uh, we, we, you can pray for us that we get it right because, you know, we want to rightly divide the word of God, and that was David. All he cared about was what God cared about. All he cared about was God's opinion, and not only that, he made every effort to do what it said to do what God said to do. I mean, is that you? Do you care about what God's word says? Do you endeavor to do whatever it says in your life? Do whatever it says in your life with regards to going to church, with regards to serving him, with regards to how you handle your money, with regards to how you treat sex, with regards to who you date, with regards to how you respond to temptation or how you raise your kids or how you treat your spouse or how you relate to people who hate you, do you do what it says? We need to do what God's word says. Or do you do whatever you want to do? Right? You just do whatever you want to do. Someone with a heart after God will always do what God wants them to do. And you can write that one down. Now, the very last thing that King Saul did in his life, the last thing he did in his life before he died was to lead the Israelites in battle against the Philistines at Mount Geboa. Now, on the eve of battle, so the night before the battle, let's say tomorrow's the big battle, all right? So on the night before the big battle, Saul went to Endor. Not the moon of Endor, I wish it was, but Endor, which was a small village in Galilee. And he went there, of all things, he went there to consult a witch to seek her advice on the battle that was going to take place the very next day. It's actually, it's found in 1 Samuel 28. We're not going to look at it. 1 Samuel 28, make, make a note of that. It's a creepy story. It's a spooky story. You ought to read that story. If there's a ghost story in the Bible. That's probably it right there. But he goes to consult a witch. Now, here's what you need to know about what Saul did. First, it was absolutely against Mosaic law to consult a witch. It was against Mosaic law, so what he did was in direct contravention to God's word, which is another reason why God decided to replace him with David, because Saul was not somebody who was willing to do all of God's will and obey God's word. And then, as he talked to the witch, the witch told him what was going to happen. She told him that on the very next day, Israel was going to be defeated. Philistines were going to defeat them. Not only that, she told him, that he was going to die. And all his sons were going to die, including his son Jonathan, who was David's best friend. And the next day came and the battle ensued, and that's exactly what happened. Israel lost, King Saul died, and so did his son Jonathan. Again, David's BFF. Some, and that allowed for David to become the king. Right? Now, sometime after David became king, so now he's king. Right, sometime, sometime after he became king, he inquired as to whether or not Saul, the late King Saul, the dead King Saul, had any surviving family members. Now, usually, when a ruler wanted to know whether his opponent or his predecessor had any surviving family members was so that they could kill them, lest they plot to some kind of revenge to take the throne back, they would eliminate them. So they wouldn't be a threat to their future kingdom. 
And, and that's exactly what rulers have done all throughout history. I read up a, a, on a lady, a woman named Empress Wu Zeshan, who, was, who ruled China for 40 years, the only female to rule, the only female sovereign to rule China in all of its history. She killed her sister. She butchered her brother. She poisoned her mother, and she killed her own children because she perceived them to be a threat to her throne. Suleiman the Magnificent, Sultan of Ottoman Empire, murdered his firstborn son. Imagine that. Murdered his firstborn son because he thought that he was a threat to his sultanship. Nero did the same thing. Emperor Nero murdered his wife and mother for the same reason. King Herod murdered his wife and two sons. King Edward IV killed his brother, the Duke of Clarence, because he thought that the Duke wanted to take over his throne. And after the Duke was dead, get this, after the Duke was dead, both of his young sons mysteriously vanished in a thin air, never to be seen again. And it is believed that they were killed by their uncle Richard because Richard didn't want Clarence's sons to become king. He wanted to become king. And that's exactly what happened. That's how we got King Richard III because he killed his nephews. See, this is what rulers have done all throughout history. They kill even family members to preserve their power. So when David asked if Saul had any family members, what was he up to? Well, take a look. 2 Samuel chapter 9. And it says in verse 1, And David said, Is there, any, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show, show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Is there anyone left at the house of Saul that I may show what? Kindness, right? David wanted to know if Saul had any surviving family members so that he could bless them, not kill them. And he wanted to do this for Jonathan's sake because, again, Jonathan was his BFF. Now, put, to put this into perspective, right, you might remember Saul hated David. He hated him. He hated David. He tried over and over again. Saul tried to kill David. And now Saul was dead. David was king. And now David wants to know if Saul has any family members so he could do good to them. It's remarkable. And then take a look at verse 2. It says, now there was a servant of the house of Saul. Right? Saul had some surviving ser servants. All right? he, the, there was a servant named, uh, of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. So, so the king's people, the king David's people, heard about a fellow named Ziba, who was a servant of the deceased King Saul. And so they, they held him in for questioning. And then verse 3 says this, And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. So Ziba told King Saul, David that there was one surviving family member. It was Jonathan's son, which would have made him Saul's grandson. Saul's grandson, and he was crippled in his feet. He, he was a special needs kid. And, and he didn't. Now, this doesn't tell us the exact nature of, 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 this, of the boy's condition. But here's what we do know. We do know when the boy was five years old, when he was five years old, that's when his father and grandfather were killed at Mount Gilboa. When word of de their deaths reached the nurse who was caring for the boy, she grabbed the boy and they fled for their lives lest they be killed as well. And in the process of fleeing, the nurse dropped the boy 
And somehow, when, they, when she dropped him, he injured his legs, and that's how he lost the use of his legs. We find that in 2 Samuel chapter 4, and it says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse Nurse took him up and fled, and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. And so, when Ziba told King David about Mephibosheth, his heart just sank. It just sank. Here was the late king's grandson, who was now fatherless, probably motherless because there's no mention of the mother in this passage. So he was probably an orphan, five years old well, at the time when he was injured, couldn't walk. I mean, they didn't have crutches and, and uh, wheelchairs back then. There was no physical therapy back then, which meant that the boy would probably have to live out his life, eke out his life living as a beggar. Uh, he couldn't work. And David's heart just went out to him. And so he summoned Mephibosheth to his palace. Going back to 2 Samuel chapter 9, take a look at it, starting in verse 6. It says, And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage to the king. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. Imagine that. I will restore all the land of, your, of, your, of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, Mephibosheth paid homage to King David and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Isn't that amazing? King Saul's grandson would be taken care of for the rest of his life by King David. That's what, and he would return all the land that belonged to Saul, return it to him. And then take a look at verse 9. It says, And then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring him bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Always eat at my table. And now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? David not only showed kindness to Mephibosheth, treated him like one of his own sons, but he also extended that kindness to Saul's servant Ziba and his entire clan, to his sons and his servants. And this is the first, fourth reason why David was a man after God's own heart, because his heart went out to those who were hurting. His, he, he was moved with compassion for those who were struggling. He cared for the have-nots and for those who were down and out. Simply put, David had a heart for people. He had a heart for people, and he had on his heart what was on God's heart. And that's the focal point of what it means to have a heart after God. You can write this one down. Someone with a heart after God has on his heart what is on God's heart. 
He has on his heart what is on God's heart, which explains why when Pastor David Platt reflected back on all those men, women, and children that he saw in the Himalayas without food and without water and without Jesus, he couldn't stop crying because he had a heart for people, because God has a heart for people. What about you? Are you a man or a, boy, uh, a woman or a boy or a girl after God's own heart? Do you have a heart for people? You know, sometimes God moves in such a way that, that he will put a specific group of people on our hearts. You know, he'll put a specific group of people, like, like Zachary and Alice, Nan, Alice and Nance. This is, this is them right here with their daughter, Kayla. They currently live in Houston, Texas. And they become new friends uh, of ours. They're new friends to our church. A few years ago, God laid it on their hearts, just put it on their hearts to become missionaries in Japan, where a little over 500,000 people out of 127 million, a little more than 500,000 people out of 127 million know Jesus. That's less than a half of 1%, which means that most people in Japan have never even heard the name of Jesus. If you ask the average Japanese person, do you know who Jesus is? They'll say, no, who's that? Never even heard his name. And God burdened their hearts. God burdened their hearts to reach the Japanese. And so they decided a few years ago to leave everything they have in America, to sell their home, to quit their jobs, to leave their family, to leave their friends, and move to Japan. And we were so moved by their story and vision that we decided our church decided to become one of their financial supporters, and that was made, only po made possible only because of your, your generous giving to our church. There was some extra there, and we were able to support them. And their plan, as soon as Japan opens up their doors, they're planning to leave Houston and head to Osaka, where they expect to be in Japan for the rest of their lives. Amazing. And we hope that they'll stop off here in Torrance to say hello to us before they make their way over there, and I'll keep you posted when, when that happens. You see, sometimes God just gives a specific group of people, puts them on our hearts to care for them. And that's true of my wife, Cheryl, if I can, you know, brag a little bit about her, and I'm so proud of her. She, she has a heart for, for Africa. This July, because she's fully vaccinated, is going to get on a plane and head to Uganda for the eighth time. Eighth time. I've been there zero times. This will be her eighth trip to Africa. And you may, and not only that, one of, one of our young adults, Sammy Suhu, she also has a heart for Africa, so she's going in July as well. You, you may not have a heart for Africa, or you may not have a heart for Japan. That's okay. Maybe you have a heart for, for women and children who are victims of human trafficking. Maybe you have a heart for the homeless. Did you know that here in L.A. County, there are more than 65,000 homeless people? And I read the other day that in four years, that number is going to nearly double. 80, by 84%, it's going to nearly double. We're going to have twice the number of homeless people in L.A. County in four years. Maybe you have a heart for college students. Did you know that just a few miles from here, right up on Crenshaw Boulevard, there are 22,000 students at El Camino Community College, and most of them don't know Jesus. Only a fraction of them go to church. And then just down the 405, right off, right off of Avalon, Cal State Dominguez Hills, there are 17,000 students, and most of them don't know Jesus. Maybe you have a heart for college students. Maybe you have a heart for middle school students, junior high school students, or maybe high school students. 
Maybe you have a heart for married folks with, with couples with kids or even single parents. Such a hard job, even when there are two of you doing it, let alone only one of you. Or maybe you just have a heart for children. In fact, speaking of which, this week our, our church grew by two when on Tuesday evening Matt and Stephanie Chin gave birth to a brand new baby girl who welcomed Kendall Riley into their home this last Tuesday. And then the very next day on Wednesday, Pastor Dave and his wife Sarah welcomed little Carter David into the world. Any day now, Charles and Alicia Thornhill about to welcome their second daughter into the world. Please keep them in your prayers that they have a safe delivery. But who do you have a heart for? Do you have a heart for these little ones? Do you have a heart for all the Muslims in the world? Maybe you have a heart for special needs kids. I know that's what's on my daughter Natalie's heart. Maybe you have a heart for adoption or for fostering. Maybe you have a heart for people like me, old people. That'd be good. Have a heart for old people. If you don't have a heart for people, you should pray and ask God to give you one. You should ask God to make you a man or a woman after God's own heart, a boy or a girl after God's own heart. Ask God to give you a courageous faith. And ask God to take you to a place where sin, when you sin, it will absolutely break you. And ask God to take you to a place where you're willing to do whatever He wants you to do. Just tell Him, I'm willing to do whatever you want to do. I will obey your word, God, no matter what it costs me. Ask God to put it on his heart. Put it on your heart. And do you know why we should pray these prayers? Do you know why we need to pray these prayers? Because I think something needs to change in us. I know something needs to change in me. You see, if we don't have on our hearts what's on God's heart, then we'll grow up and at the end of our lives, everything will all be said and done and we'll, we'll look back and we'll, we'll see what really happened, that is our lives were all about us. All the things that you thought about were all about you. All the things that you talked about were all about you. All that money you spent was all about you. It was all on you. All that time you spent was all about you. And if that's what your life will be like when it's all said and done, all I say is what a terrible shame and what a terrible waste. So ask God to make you a man or a woman after God's own heart. And when God answers that prayer, when God answers that prayer and gives you a heart for people, then do something about it. Don't just sit back and do nothing. Do something about it. Go out and love people. And if you see a beautiful white pickup truck with three guys in it, just hanging out, throwing trash all over the place in front of your house, go out and love them. Go out and say hello to them. Take a bottle of water to them. That's what I plan to do the next time I see them. If we do that, maybe... This maybe will change the world. Let's close our time in prayer. As you have your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I would ask again, do you have a heart after God's own heart? Do you have a heart for people? If not, this is your time right now. This is your time. Why don't you ask him to give you a heart so that your life isn't about you. It'll be about him and it'll be about others. Right, right where you're sitting, right where you're watching at home, even if you're outside in the tent, just pray right now. 
God, give me a heart. Father, give, give us an outrageous heart. Give us an outrageous faith. Give us, take us to a place, Father, that will hate our sin and it will grieve us every time we offend you. God, take us to a place we're willing to do your will, where, where, where we are willing to do whatever your word says, no matter what the cost. God, take us to a place where we will have on our hearts what is on your hearts, and we will love people, and we will begin to see them differently, and we'll begin to see people as you see them. Father, hear our prayers. And do a work in us. God, do a work in me because something needs a change in me. And my guess is something needs a change in all of us. So thank you, Father. Thank you. Thank you for the heart that you have for us. Thank you for the heart that you had for me. That you would allow me to come to know you. Now put on our hearts what's on your heart. And let us change the world. We love you, Lord. Thank you so much. And we pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen.